good to be with you all this morning. Thank you for joining us in spite of the weather. And it, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, as they say. I hope your Thanksgiving was good, and I hope the trip to fan has made its way out of your system, and you're ready to, ready to worship the Lord by way of opening up the Word and learning what He has to say for us this morning. And while Christmas season is approaching, I want you to think back on a time when you received the gift, whether it was during Christmas or otherwise, that was just wonderful. You would, you would describe it as such. It was just a, a wonderfully given gift. Maybe it was due to its timing. It was the right gift at the right time. Maybe it was wonderful because of its level of generosity. You couldn't believe that someone would give you such a gift. It was just so incredibly generous. Or perhaps it was the thoughtfulness or the time that went into it. It was such a wonderful gift that someone had given you. Regardless, it was just wonderful. And in being a part of the church family, it's, it's cool to see folks give various gifts in various ways as well. Many of these gifts happened well before I came here back in 2012. But when I first got here, we lived at Bethany Farms. And here's a picture of it. It's a little bit updated, but... When I first moved here, it was just that older, a little bit more decrepit barn in the left over there, the ministry house, which is just at the top, and then one of the duplexes. We lived off to the right. Right off the bat, it was just Alexandra and myself. And right after we got married, we found out my wife's uh, mother was sick. And so she was always going down to Cincinnati to go take care of her mother. <clears throat> and we were um, in seminary. I know, I know that's usually kind of... It's known that people are flushed with cash when they're in seminary, but that wasn't the case for us. We were a bit, we were a bit strapped for cash, and we didn't. There were certain times where we wouldn't, didn't know how ends were going to meet, and that's when the Lord, through faithful people in our church family, would provide gas cards and say, "This is how you're going to make it down to Cincinnati this this weekend." And so God just gave us wonderful gifts all throughout seminary. And there was another individual down who's a who's a friend of my wife's father who would always nab a deer every deer season and always generously give it to us. And we wrote him a letter afterwards telling him, you kept us alive during seminary with your wonderful gift of venison. You may not have realized that. Uh, but even the, even the land that we were living on was at one point in time a gift. Back in 2005, a family outside of our church family approached us, letting us know, hey, we have a tax problem. We have a house, we have 100 acres of ground, we have a barn that dated back into the 1800s, and you see that is certainly the case, uh, that had been partially restored. We have some cash, and now what was once seminary housing for, um, for, for those who are in seminary is now home to the men's residential treatment facility. So there's the, there's the barn, the restored uh, barn just to the south of where, um, where you see that, where you saw that previous barn, where they do a lot of their work. The Lord has just done such wonderful things in that area. It was a wonderful gift that God chose to give our church family. And just a few years ago, the same thing happened with land that's adjacent to our Faith East campus. Someone purchased the land and gave it to us as a gift. Someone gave us that land, that area that's being built up right now as a gift. And based on what we learned during the stewardship celebration last weekend, imagine all of the ministry that's going to be taking place on that parcel of land. Being from Iowa... I'm not against corn in any way, shape, or form, uh, but it's suiting to think of the spiritual and character growth that will take place on a land that was once home to the growing of corn and beans. 
again, from a human perspective, it all started with a wonderful gift. And I could use up the entirety of my time discussing the wonderful gifts that generous individuals have given our church family or even um, my family in particular, whether it's my parents, my in-laws, generous church members, so forth. Uh, But I'm wanting us to consider these matters as we prepare to read about the promise of an even more wonderful gift. 2,700 years ago, God made several very specific prophecies about a gift that was going to be delivered to the human race. 2,700 years ago, he made this promise. This prophecy was made 700 years before the gift would be delivered. Imagine that. The Lord was building anticipation for the greatest of all gifts, 700 years in the making. It's one that is not just for receiving, but one also for sharing. And I would invite you, just as Pastor Aaron has already said, to open up to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using the Bible in the chair back in front of you, you're going to find that on page 492 in the front section of the Bible. This morning, as he also mentioned, we're beginning a new series entitled Light of the World in reference to Jesus being this wonderful light. We're going to be taking a closer look at the four phrases used to describe this wonderful gift that the Lord has given us, the gift of his promised Messiah. Those uh, famed gifts, as they're phrased, are um, wonderful counselor, and that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and then lastly, we'll end on Prince of Peace, looking at each one of these phrases, seeing how, what is it that the Lord is trying to draw out about this Messiah that was 700 years in the making to come. And again, what we're about to read took place 700 years before that. For our part, we can't say with 100% accuracy who's going to win the game today between the Colts and the Buccaneers. And you can't even say what the score is going to be with any level of accuracy either. And if you do, then uh, you're you're incredible and you guessed. Um, But for God's word to know exact details of Messiah centuries before coming is absolutely astounding. Prophecy is one of the more compelling aspects that we find in Christianity. It's one of the most convincing arguments to validate its various claims. Anyone can guess at what's going to happen in the future. You can guess about who's going to be president in 2024. You can guess about various trends that you see in culture or other cultures. But it's a whole other thing to declare and then to do so with pinpointed accuracy. This is how it is going to happen. When presented with such incredible evidence, there are really only two possible options. Number one, you embrace the God holding the pen or you harden your heart. Those are the only two options. And it's one of the reasons why we're getting into this aspect of our series. We want people to be presented with the evidence as well to see this is a prophecy that has happened of the Messiah that was to come. And you can either embrace the God who penned such incredible prophecies and see his word to be true and see him to be one who is able to declare that which will come in the future, or you harden your heart. We hope you do the former, not the latter. A short while ago, we even heard Peter make a similar argument regarding the validity of prophecy. He said this, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So in, in speaking of Jesus Christ and declaring his goodness, he was saying, when we're making up these fables, we were following prophecy of scripture. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance. So he's saying this is what was uttered by the majestic glory, by the Father to the Son. So they, for their part, were declaring who Jesus was. And they're saying, not only that, this is what God the Father said of Jesus. He said, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. When we were studying this passage, we talked about there were two different points in time in Jesus' ministry where the Father spoke of Jesus from heaven, his baptism and his transfiguration. Peter makes it clear right here that he's speaking of the transfiguration, the time where Jesus was glorified before the eyes of the disciples, and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him of whom I am well pleased. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have confidence in this, to which you do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember when we walked through this passage, we painted a mental picture. The dark place is this world who is convinced and enshrouded by all sorts of falsities, but there's this lamp shining, and that is God's word, these prophecies spoken of old in this Jesus. But then what happens? Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart, speaking of the second coming of Jesus. So right now, we look as though in a dark place, fixing our eyes on the lamp of the word of God to light and and shine in this dark place, waiting until the day where the morning dawns, when Jesus finally comes and makes all things right. That's what we look forward to. But know this first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This puts validity into it. This isn't men speaking. This is God speaking. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. And and you know this by when we seek to predict things, it very rarely ever comes true, especially not in pinpointed detail because we're not speaking it into existence as God does. We're guessing on what could happen in the future. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I want to zero in on one particular part of our passage as we get into our series this morning. We have a more sure, the prophetic word. As we get into this series, it's important to highlight this point. We're not walking through four aspects of a prophecy that we hope comes to fruition at some undefined point in the future. We're not placing our hope even in the gifts of man as wonderful as we've seen them even to be in our church family. And further, we've seen the prophecies come to completion in the person and work of Jesus. We're looking to a God who holds his promises and keeps them. We hope as we go through this aspect of the wonderful gift of Christ leading up into Christmas, it causes you to love him more and to marvel at his unfathomable provision. So a lot of our series focuses on, you know, building and growing closer to Jesus or any of these aspects. One of the things we're hoping this series accomplishes in your heart is that you adore him more. We're hoping to simply, as we're going to be talking about, especially in this passage, to point to Jesus and just say, just look at him. Look at how wonderful and marvelous he is. Look at the provision that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and open up, if you're not already, to Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Already good news. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. That's good news to the listeners so far, isn't it? 
by the way of the sea. Okay, a little bit more precarious. On the other side of the Jordan, where are we going with this, Lord? Galilee of the Gentiles. Now wait, how is this a good gift? And who is this a good gift to? This is a good gift to all men, to all women, to all of us. This is a gift that's even for the Gentiles. This is a good gift, unless you are ethnically Jewish, this is a good gift that's also good for you. The people who walk in darkness, that is us, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, light will shine on them. Isn't this wonderful news? Isn't this a beautiful gift? You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Isn't that what gifts are supposed to do? They'll be glad. Where do we find gladness, brothers and sisters? They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. There won't be necessary anymore. There won't be war. There won't be turmoil for what's our hope in? What is this gift? It's unexpected. It's going to spring up from the pages if you're reading it for the first time. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. What's so great about a kid? Well, the government is going to rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. All other governments fade. All other peace eventually dwindles and falls away, rages into war on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What's going to make this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. That is what is going to accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord that we're walking through this morning. And as we're talking about it, we're talking about the gift that is wonderful, this wonderful counselor. And from these verses, I want us to especially think about three reasons Jesus is a treasured gift to us. Again, we're just pointing this morning. This is who Jesus is and what a wonderful gift he is. And before we get into these three reasons specifically, it's worth taking a look at one of the key words and defining it as God's word defines the word. So let's look at wonderful as it's spoken about throughout the Bible. We see first off that it is a rather unusual thing, or at least it it, it busts out from the pages of God's word as unusual. Isaiah 25, a little bit later on, says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I'm going to lift you up. I'll give thanks for your name, for you have worked, there's our word, wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Again, we have a a God who plans and then puts it into execution. He is the enactor of all things. And there's a lot going on in that verse. First, Isaiah is showing that this mighty God of wonders is his God. It's not some distant God. It is his very own God. Then because of how awesome he is, Isaiah makes it his goal to lift his name high and give thanks for all the wonderful things that he has done. And then he talks about these works, describing them as wonders. And it may be helpful to think about what isn't wonderful as we begin to define what is wonderful. What isn't wonderful? Wonderful can any, be anything from awful to just the bland mundane, the, the vanilla, the, the, the basic 
But the works that are wonderful tend to stand out and tend to catch our eye, things that are wonderful. They delight us. They draw us in. So imagine going about your typical day, whether that's at the office or at school or running errands, and then you hear the most delightful singing voice that you've ever heard in your entire life. What happens when, that, when you hear that? I remember one time during the, the biblical counseling training conference, I was doing some work on the second level of uh, the school area, and there were no classes going on there, just some, uh, some people working in various rooms. And out of nowhere, I, out of one of the classrooms, I heard just a beautiful singing voice. And what does it do in our hearts? It draws us in. I don't know how she got in there. I, most of the rooms were locked, and so I'm not going to speak to any nefarious intent. But there was this beautiful voice coming out of one of the rooms, uh, this operatic voice that seemed to be practicing for uh, a concert or something. It, it stirs up something in our hearts. We want to know more about it. We want to investigate it. Where is the voice coming from? Whose voice is it? How much more wonderful are the works of the Lord? From far from usual, they're often what he uses, his works, to draw us to himself. Now think back on your own life. When, when the unwonderful things have been happening in your life, times where God has metaphorically been that painfully gorgeous voice cutting in through the mundane, those were his wonderful works calling us to the one who is more delightful than all else. And I hope you can say the same for your own relationship with Yahweh. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I'll give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders. I hope you can say the same of your relationship with him. And another way of saying that is that God's works are extraordinary. And we see this in Psalm 77. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. There's our word. I will meditate on your work and muse on your deeds. I'm going to think about them. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who, there it is again, works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. If you use a word enough times, it tends to become overworked. It tends to lose a lot of its meaning. One of those words for me is awesome. Go ahead and say awesome. Awesome. Yeah, awesome is my word. I use it to describe everything from the birth of a child that was awesome all the way to a really good high five. Like, boom, man, that was awesome. And it has to be a really good high five for me to describe it as awesome. But in a literal sense, awesome is intended to mean observing a person or an event that leaves you with a sense of awe. You are awe-inspired as a result of encountering this event or this individual. And as good as a high five can be, they can't measure up to this standard of awe. Ezekiel was in awe when he saw visions of the Lord. He literally, it literally says of him, I sat there overwhelmed in awe among the people of Tel Aviv for seven days. He was awestruck for seven days. John was in awe when he saw the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter one. It caused him to fall at his feet as though he was dead Wonderful is quite a bit like awesome. We use it to describe a really good day. How was your day? It was wonderful. It was just a wonderful day. Or we can use it to describe a, a satisfying slice of cheesecake. How was that cheesecake? It was, it was wonderful. And while I'm not lobbying for us to omit those words from our vocabulary, unless we encounter something truly wonderful or awesome, you can continue to use those words as far as I'm concerned. 
I don't want us to allow the word to be used. I do want us rather to allow this word to be used as God's word intends it to be used. I don't want us to import our meaning into God's word. Allow wonderful to be wonderful. His works are far better than a really good slice of cheesecake or a perfectly executed high five. The extraordinary nature of the person and works of God defies our words, but wonderful for our purposes this morning will have to do. Lastly, another emphasis to point out is the unique nature of his being. Exodus 15 points this out. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, there's my word, in praises, but then doing what? Working wonders. There's something altogether different about who God is and what he does. When clamoring for comparisons or similes, we see the authors of Scripture all coming to the same conclusion. They all seem to simply just point. It's almost like they're saying, I can't think of anything to describe what he's like, so just just take a look for yourself. This is what he's like. Or his works are so much wonderful than anything you've ever seen or anything you've ever experienced. You just have to do, you just have to train your eyes on him. You just have to look at what he has done. Look at what he is doing. Just look. It reminds me of John's account at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he starts calling his disciples. John 1 says the next day he purposed to go to a land of Galilee. So there we see a tie-in with Isaiah chapter 9. He found Philip. And Jesus said to him, it's interesting, Pastor Aaron was talking this morning, a lot of the disciples came out of Galilee. He, he called a lot of his disciples out of there, out of this land of darkness. They profoundly saw this light and they wanted to testify. Hey, come look at this light. And he, Jesus saw Philip and what did he say? Follow me. Who was he pointing to? Jesus was pointing to himself. What more could he do? Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and all the, also all the prophets wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, what do you say? Come and see. He just pointed. Come, how, what am I going to do to describe him? Come and see. Is Jesus really that wonderful of a gift? Brothers and sisters, Come and see. First, Jesus is wonderful because of his completeness. This first part of our passage is incredibly important. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. What's the emphasis here? What are the three points that he's seeking to make? This gift is going to have it all. It's not a batteries not included sort of situation. Do you remember that? When you were growing up, your aunt would give you that gift, that RC remote control car you were finally looking forward to. Your seven-year-old mind pieces it all together, and then you push the remote control forward, and what happens? Nothing, because batteries were not included. And then your dad's always out of batteries, so you have to wait until stores are open again. But that's not what this is. This gift will have everything. That's a part of what makes it so wonderful. Looking at it piece by piece, it's promised that a child would be born. And don't miss the utter significance of this. Again, it would jump out of the pages. It would have been stark. These wonderful promises are being made. And then the provision is a child. This speaks to one of the unique qualities of the Messiah that was to come. He would be the son of man, emphasizing his humanity. Two chapters earlier, Isaiah would have emphasized this point. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, just as we sang it this morning, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
This gift would be wonderful, awe-inspiring, awesome from the very beginning. You don't need to know intimate details about the birds and the bees to be caught off guard by the incongruency of a virgin getting pregnant, but the Adamic sin nature needed to be bypassed. And he could not be fully God if he was conceived by a regular guy. He needed to be the son of man and the son of God. And in a wonderful mystery, the Lord perfectly carried out this marvelous work that only he could accomplish. And all we can do is what? All we can do is point. I don't understand how all of it works, but look, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? And this resulted in Emmanuel, God with us. The apostles never seemed to get over that. And the word became flesh. And can you believe it? dwelt among us. We saw his glory. You can almost hear the the rushed way that John is writing this and the rushed way he would be saying it. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Peter all over the place is launching into psalms of elation to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This wonderful gift was a child to be born to us, a son who would have been given. As mentioned just a minute ago, Jesus was the son of God. A child will be born, a son will be, what's the curious word there? Given. If I'm giving you something, what's the implication of its prior existence? It was already there. I already had it. Shockingly, this speaks to the pre-existence of Jesus. This child will be given to us. In another equally real sense, he has no point of origin. Do you have a point of origin? In terms of concept, no, God has known you since before the foundation of the world, according to Jeremiah 1.5, Psalm 139.16, and Ephesians 1.4. But in terms of your actual existence, you and I, we each have a beginning date dating back to our point of conception but not so with Jesus. He's totally unique in his person, unlike anything else. Again, all you can do is point specifically to a king who will rule well. We saw that the government is gonna be upon his shoulders. This is gonna come to its ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns, when the morning star finally dawns in our hearts, when Jesus comes to us. He establishes the thousand-year reign after the seven-year tribulation. But from a spiritual sense, Christ is already seated upon his throne, reigning over his kingdom. Again, John helps us with this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus is already, in a very real sense, reigning. This, of course, took place right before the cross. But the author of Hebrews continues, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So he is ruling, he is reigning. When he had made purification for sins, when he had died on the cross on our behalf, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is to say he is reigning with power right now as we speak. So piecing it all together, we understand that this prophecy is about one who will be human, divine, and Lord. As Pastor Byers says it so eloquently, he is personal, a child will be born. He is perfect, a son will be given and he is powerful, the government will be on his shoulders. He's personal, he's perfect, he's powerful. Now with all of that, you may say, 
Stefan, you've given a good commentary on the passage, but this hasn't passed the low bar of a sermon quite yet, which is to say we've talked a lot about what the passage is about, but not a whole lot on to do what to do about the passage. But I hope you haven't missed the implications. There are a lot of gifts that are going to be going around during this season, during this Christmas, post-Thanksgiving season. Literal gifts, gifts of time with family, gifts of fruitful ministry. A lot, there's a whole lot going on, whether it's the Christmas for everyone or all, all sorts of the ministries that we have. Gifts of rest for many of us. And with all of it, we can miss the gift that is the complete package. Don't forget where God's word in Isaiah is pointing to this Christmas. We need someone who is personal so a child was born We needed someone who would pay for our sins, so this son was, remember, given. We needed someone who could lead our lives, so this ruler over all was provided for us. So what's the first description of the Messiah who was to come? He is wonderful. He is wonderful for all the reasons that we talked about and infinitely more. But Isaiah also says he's wonderful because of his counsel. He's the wonderful counselor. Now, in a church like this, we could get really carried away with this point, right? We found the word counsel. <laughs> we love the word of God and how it, it's used in the process of discipleship. And a huge part of this is the giving of counsel or counseling as it's more clinically referenced. And it's pretty awesome. There I go again, using the word, that the first way that the Messiah is described is as the wonderful counselor. You can make a whole lot of hay, and we have already with that particular point, but the purpose of the message is simply to point. So to get a better understanding of this Messiah's wonderful counsel, let's look at what differentiates it from conventional counsel. And in his top-rated commentary, John N. Oswald says this, throughout the first part of the book especially, he's talking about the book of Isaiah, throughout the first part of the book, the folly of human wisdom is derided. For usually, such counsel lacked any spiritual wisdom. That's the nature of human wisdom. It lacks any actual depth to it. By contrast, the coming one would give wondrous counsel, unfailing in depth of its wisdom. For it is true wisdom, it is true wisdom, wisdom rather, which knows that in weakness is strength, in surrender is victory, in death is life. So this counselor is a wonder because his counsel goes beyond the mere human. Most often, human counsel is pretty predictable. We've dispensed it ourselves, and we've received it also. He dumped you? Well, then mail all of his stuff back via the garbage truck, block him from your phone, and snub all his friends. That's human counsel when you get dumped, isn't it? Just get rid of him. Or if you want to be on top in the business world, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Cloaks and daggers is how you get to the top. But the counsel of the Lord is altogether different. It's wonderful in that his words are so often unexpected. There are times in Jesus' ministry where we think, I never would have dreamed of saying that. A rich guy asked Jesus how to attain eternal life, and he says, sell all your things, give to the poor, and follow me. Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> you had a captive audience. You could, have, you could have done a little bit more there, couldn't you have? What was he doing? He was revealing a hard heart. He wasn't worshiping me. He wasn't trying to follow after me. I was revealing that he had a God already, and I was saying, go get rid of your God and follow the one true God, Jesus. His counsel is wonderful. Or a woman comes to him asking for her daughter to be healed, and he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
We'd be like, send that man to sensitivity training, right? He, does, he needs a little bit of that going on. Like we wouldn't call someone a dog if they're trying to ask us for a little bit of help. What was he doing? He was revealing her humble heart. Showing it, it doesn't matter. He, she just wanted her, her daughter healed. And Jesus was drawing that out. And he eventually simply does that. We could go to one of the more renowned passages in all of scripture as well. God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son that whoever does the simple act of what? Believing in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. We would have expected the opposite. We would have expected God so loved the world that he made it so that we could work our way up to him. We could attain our way to him. But no, he gave, and we must simply believe. But this wonderful counsel brings a challenge to our hearts. Do you want a God who's telling you things you would have already expected or one who is surprising you at every turn. What happens when we ask for advice and get a response that we didn't expect? In our own hearts, in our own lives, what happens when we ask for advice and we don't get what we expect? We have a choice to make. Did I ask for the sake of validation or consideration? (laughs) Do you ever struggle with this in your own life? In other words, do I reject counsel that I haven't already thought of myself? In other words, I'm only seeking to validate my decisions. Or am I open to the consideration of others? Do I have the heart of the rich young ruler or the heart of the, the woman whose mother needed, or the woman whose daughter rather needed healing? The best test for this is found in God's word. When I find myself in disagreement with what he says, who wins that internal argument? That will determine who is the wonderful counselor in your own life, you or him. And if the sober answer is you, where will you always be pointing? Those who humbly look to the counsel of the one who is wonderful seek out all sorts of opportunities to point him to others. They're not wonderful in their own counsel. I want to point you to the one who is wonderful in his counsel. And this is the reason many of you signed up for the limitivity coming up for the next few weeks. You want opportunities to point to this wonderful counselor. Many of the folks will be caught off guard by the counsel given as they walk through and see the various ways that God provided this wonderful gift of salvation to a people who were contrary to him. Some may be convinced who are walking through that line or driving through that line that heaven is something that they can work their way towards. It's an opportunity to show Christ's work for them, and the simple act of belief is that which it is attained by. And some may think that there's no place for someone like them in God's church. It's an opportunity to show God's wonderful love for even such as them, such as myself. As we point to Christ, let's make sure we're praying that the Lord would open their eyes to hear his counsel and see the wonderful counselor whose counsel is also wonderful in that his words are worthy of remembering. You never want to forget the things that are wonderful, like the first time you heard your spouse say, I love you, or the moment that God's word became sweet to your ears. Those are wonderful times. The things that we deem wonderful are worthy of committing to memory. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old, Psalm 77 says, by way of reminder. His words and deeds are worthy of committing to memory, but you'll only actually do it if you see Christ as he is. Wonderful. That's the only way you will remember and recall and dwell on his words as the word has already said. Do you believe Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? 
Or do you pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? And have you been enamored by Jesus, that so enamored by him that you preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But we see the negative aspect to all of this in the book of Isaiah. Please turn ahead if you're still in Isaiah chapter 9, 20 chapters to Isaiah chapter 29 in Isaiah In Isaiah 29, specifically in verses 13 through 14, we see another appearance of wonderful. We even see the presence of marvelous. Isaiah 29, starting in verse 13, says this. See if you can find wonderful. See if you can find marvelous. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. Is that what he's looking for? But they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. Is this good news? And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Do you see our words? Wonderful, wonderfully marvelous. Normally, we'd think about that in in a good way, but in this case, it's the exact opposite. We could say it like this. Wonderful in that there are consequences to, dis- to disobeying his counsel. We have a choice. Are we going to see his counsel as wonderful and follow what God says? Because while you can choose to disobey his counsel, what he has set forth in his word, you can't choose the consequences of that decision. Obedience to the counsel of the Lord has brought about great blessings. They come in tow. Many of us would ascribe to that. We would say, yes, when we follow the Lord, it might be hard, uh, even at the end, but it, it brings with it blessings, blessings of closeness and intimacy with Christ that are unmatched. But to reiterate the passage that Pastor Virus mentioned during our stewardship celebration last week, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Unfortunately, many of us could speak to that as well when we don't follow God's wonderful counsel. But praise God for his wonderful counsel, wonderful because of its ability to change people. His counsel has immense power. Point to the wonderful counselor because he alone has the ability to draw people to himself. We see this gentle shepherd-like care when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've never seen Jesus as marvelous. Maybe you've never seen him as wonderful. Maybe you've never come to him, to this Jesus. And that's the invitation for you this morning. All I can do is simply point. And Jesus, all he can do is beckon. And if he is beckoning you this morning, I would say go to Jesus, the one who is able to satisfy, the one who is worthy of our gaze to just simply marvel at him. Go to Jesus, especially if you've never done so before. But to my brothers and sisters who have gone to Jesus, point to the wonderful counselor because he alone is able to fill our hearts with hope. Conventional wisdom would say that those who are weak need to fight for power. Is that the hope-filled counsel of the one who is wonderful? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Those who see Jesus as wonderful want nothing more than him. And if that's attained through weakness, then bring on the weaknesses. 
And isn't that what you'll hear from the word, from the world rather? You can only get it from him. You can't get this counsel from anyone else but Christ. Point to the wonderful counselor because he alone gives the ability to know how to relate to one another. The unwonderful counsel of the world tells us to look out for number one, even at the expense of others. But the wonderful counselor says, you shall love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, strength. This is the great and foremost command. The second is like it. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. When I follow the personal, perfect, powerful Messiah, I don't need to worry about how others treat me. I only need to love him and love others, irrespective of how I myself am treated. This type of counsel is senseless to a world that seems to have its gaze fixed inward, always pointing where? To self. And that's why we need to point to the wonderful counselor as we seek to call, as he seeks rather, to call us to a sacrificial and purpose-filled life. Though we have our own idea of what is fulfilling and what a fulfilling life would entail, Jesus confronts that notion by compelling his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke even adds, daily. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is pointing, but it's in a beckoning manner, calling us to look to him, to follow him. So this Christmas season, let's look together at the one who is wonderful and follow his unmatched counsel as we point others to the most wonderful of gifts. Let's pray. Father, you are wonderful, and the gifts that you give are marvelous. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the personal nature of it. We thank you that you came to live among us. You came to suffer as we do, and even more so. We thank you that you are powerful, that you are able to overcome our our greatest enemy of death. We thank you that you are Lord over all. Father, we pray that we would follow you this Christmas season. We pray that you would, we would look to you as the greatest of all gifts. So, Father, help us to do so. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.